If you're here this morning and uh, uncertain you belong because of things you've done, things you're sure you're going to do again, uh, join the crowd. I got nothing to brag about except my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This time we, uh, well, you know, <laughs> I was sure I was going to forget that anyway. Good thing the children are they're smarter than their pastor. All right. We're thankful for them as well. Thankful for the worship team always serenading us into the throne room. Um, and that's, I feel the presence of God when we, when we worship here. Um, I, uh, I could just as soon not preach and have them just keep, keep going on. Um, and all God's people said... <laughs> All God's people, especially Roe. And we've been in the book of Galatians, and uh, a whole lot of repetition. Uh, sometimes I wonder, actually, I, I spoke to a, another local pastor I had lunch with uh, this week, uh, cheating on Roe and Ed and others, uh, for whom, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I talked to him, I said, He's, What's your, what are you preaching through? I said, the book of Galatians. And I said, uh, you know, it's been kind of hard to be creative week in and week out because Paul says the same things over and over in different ways, but uh, largely the same stuff. And, and he said, yeah, I, I made the mistake of preaching through that book a couple years ago. <laughs> and I was like, no warning, no, no help, hook a brother up, help brother out. But uh, we've been in the book of Galatians, and I've, I've loved, we've talked about how when the Bible repeats itself, it, it's for us to get through our thick skulls sometimes, that, that that's what we need to know. And, and Paul is, uh, is adamant that these Galatians, for whom he was a spiritual father, that they not get this wrong, that they not substitute Jesus for something else, or, or try to add to the finished work. That when he said it's finished, he meant it. He, he didn't say it's, it's finished, but could you add your little shiny parts to make it a little bit better? That's an insult to the finished work of Christ. But last week in Galatians, we were in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, and uh, in a message entitled, How Then Shall We Live? Uh, in that text, we read this line, The righteous shall live by faith. And so it prompted the question, what does it mean for the righteous, those that are reckoned right with God, not because of anything that we've done, but because we've had the monies, the spiritual monies deposited into our a bank account, which, by the way, was short of what we needed. Um, and another person steps in. Jesus steps in and says, I know you don't have what you need. Let me go ahead and deposit what you need. And he did that for us. But the righteous will live by faith. Those reckoned righteous before God. Those who live their lives by, the faith, by faith in Jesus. They'll live by faith. Not just put their faith in, but live by faith. So what does it mean to live by faith? We said two things. It's more than this, but it's two things that we focused in on last week. The first thing is that the Christian will live in hope. Uh, one of the things I told you last week is that we as Christians should be hopers, not mopers. Uh, I, I, I am so done with Christians who mope around day in and day out, nothing victorious that they can speak about. And we have death conquered on our behalf. We should spring out of bed every morning praising God for that. We should be living in hope. And ultimately our hope is beyond the grave. Ultimately our hope is that we have life after death. 
But it's not just in life after death. We have hope in the mundane, in the day-to-day. And that's so often where we lose sight of God, is in the mundane day-to-day. It's easy to see God in the big moments, right? The momentous occasions where He comes swooping in and it's undeniable. But in the wake of that, after you get off that high, that spiritual high, which, which the Christian life is ebbs and flows, right? It's not a constant plateau. We experience difficulty. We, we experience trial, tribulation, and difficulty in our lives. But we live in victorious hope that the same God of the moments and the momentous occasions is the God of the mundane. He's, as the song says, in the waiting. You'll find him in the mountain peaks, but also in the valleys. And I'm thankful for that. Live in hope. The second thing we talked about is that the the blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ will live a life of prayer. I'm so thankful for so many of you who I'm learning a, a great deal from. I've confessed to you before, I'm a doer. If there's something to be done, a parking lot to be sealed, a, a chore to be done, a wall to be painted, a building to be set up, I, I, I'll be there. I'll try to be one of the first ones there and, and stay as long as I can. Uh, but so often, God says, yeah, but I just, wanna, I just want you to ask me to add my power to it. Now, would you just stop long enough, Jeff, to just ask me to infuse with what you're doing the power that you can't bring yourself. And that's what makes all the difference. We can work all day long, but uh, if it's apart from uh, the power of the Spirit, it's going to come up empty. It's going to come up short. So we talked about prayer, the life of a prayer warrior. We have not because we ask not. Uh, and everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests known before God. Be anxious about nothing. I uh, I know people that just wake up just in the middle of the night just praying. Because they went to bed in a posture of prayer, it was as natural as breathing for them to wake up in a posture of prayer as well. And last week, for those that uh, might have been visitors last week and wondered what we were doing, we had a corporate time of prayer. And I, and I was thrilled at the, the response that I saw. How many people emptied out of these seats to come forward. I want to assure you, we weren't worshiping the band. <laughs> Because the band, the, the worship team was up here, uh, but I want to make that clear. Uh, we only worship uh, our Lord and Savior, not, uh, not anybody else. But we prayed up here at the altar, uh, and it was so moving to me how many people came forward in response to that call. That we're just admitting, look, we, we don't have what it takes. And that's not, that's not a depressing thing to say. That's, that's an empowering thing to say. Because in our weakness, He is strong. And, and actually, in our weakness, is He made the most strong. And does he get the most glory for what we do, what he does through us? We're just vessels. I like to tell people I'm just a broken down sign pointing to Jesus. And I'm proud to be that. In the text today, we're going to be talking about why the law. Why the law? What the law is going on? That's not me swearing, but (laughs) it's coming close. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. We're not talking about the atonement, right, Tim? But what is it about do not signs that make us want to do the thing that the do not sign tells us not to do? Let's get our do not sign up there. Whether it's do not touch, all of a sudden I find when I see a do not touch sign, I think, man, the only thing I want to do right now is touch that thing. That's all I can think about. Do not touch. 
Do not enter. There's a million other square miles I could inhabit, but the one place I want to be is past that sign that says, do not enter. Past that fence that says, no trespassing. You all, you're laughing because you get it. Because you're the same as me. Bunch of rebels. Do not disturb. Do not whatever. Fill in the blank for whatever the, whatever the prohibition is and you're going to want to do it because you, somebody told you, somebody who isn't the boss of you, <laughs> told you not to do that thing. And now you're saying, that's all I want to do. I didn't even know it existed before, but now I can't help myself. Got to touch it. Um, we have a thing at work. I work at a new plant. And uh, it's, it's test before touch, talking about electrical stuff. I, I abide that one. I abide by that one. A lot of people get hurt not, not abiding by that one. But uh, they have those rules because some idiot did it, right? I mean, somebody, somebody, somebody touched before testing. Um, uh, the silliest example, I think, is, is the, the, the tags on a mattress or a pillow says, do not remove. Just bought the thing. Now I get it with the with the mattresses. I, I get it because it's actually for the manufacturer. Don't don't remove this tag because it it tells the consumer what they're buying. So it actually they usually say uh, not to be removed by anybody but the consumer. But these pillows you get, and the, literally the tag says "Do not remove tag." And that's the only thing on it. Like why'd you put the tag on there in the first place? So I first thing I do get that pillow from the store. I rip that tag off and the seam with it, and all the stuffing comes out. I think well if I just left if I just left the tag alone. The, the stuffing would still be in the pillow, um, but we have this we have this pension we have this desire to do the thing that's prohibited, the thing that we're told not to do. maybe a better example is a is a flagship hotel in uh where is that at Galveston, Texas. This is a flagship hotel built in, I think in the sixties, but it's built on this pier it's built right on the water and so the managers and the and the builders and the owners they they got together and said, "You know what I think it's going to be a problem. People are going to see this." Right on the water, they're going to want to throw a fishing line out the window. And so they, they quickly thought, well, we've got we to gotta, we gotta get in front of this. We've got to make sure this doesn't happen even before it gets started. So they said, we've got to put some signs up that says no fishing. So they, they plaster the building with signs that say no fishing. And people immediately start casting, casting their reels. And, and even more than that, they put lead weights on it so that they, it'll drop down faster and further and get in the water. And when they yank it back up, it gets caught and bangs into the window. They're placing windows left and right in this hotel. And so they got together again. They said, that, that didn't work. Why did that not work? They thought, well, maybe just take the signs down. And they did. And people stopped breaking windows. People stopped fishing. There's something about us, inside of us, deeply embedded in our DNA, that when somebody tells you you shouldn't do something, somebody tells you you couldn't do something, or you better not do something, that you just want to do it more than ever. Paul is going to go on to explain the purpose of the law, and I think those analogies help us get ready for that explanation. But he's going to explain the purpose of the law that he has thus far downplayed. Can we agree that Paul's been downplaying the law? Uh, the, the law by which these people have been living for hundreds of years. The, the law that, that God saw fit, it was so important to God to, to give it to Moses on Mount Sinai and, and make a big deal out of it. This law that was going to set this people apart, and now Paul's been downplaying it to his fellow Jews and to those that are uh, non-Jewish believers. So he's going to explain the purpose. Having demonstrated the inferiority of the law, both chronologically and theologically, because chronologically, as we talked about last week, uh, when, when God says that uh, Abraham believed and it was credited unto him as righteousness, 
It was saying that the system of faith was already in place before the law came in. So you're not going to put away or do away with the one because, uh, because something late came later. And theologically, the law, as we said last week, the law brought curse. The law brought death. Whereas the gospel, the good news, brought life. And so both chronologically and theologically, Paul has demonstrated the inferiority of the law as compared to faith. And he's now going to answer the most obvious question of all, if the law is so inferior, so insignificant in light of faith, why then the law in the first place? What the law is going on? Before we get into the text, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Uh, before we get there, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to be present among us. We ask you, Lord, to move in power. Lord, those that walked in here feeling broken, those that walked in here feeling not enough, Lord, that they would understand that they are more than enough in you. They're more than conquerors in you. They're more than victorious in you. Lord, we appreciate the law. We appreciate that you gave the law and why you gave the law, Lord. But we have something has superseded it, something is so far eclipsed it, Lord. We want to grab hold of that. So, Lord, may we take away from this morning, perhaps more so than the, the meaning of the law, why it, why it came in the first place, might we take away, Lord, the kind of God that we serve, the kind of freedom that we have in you, the kind of access that we have to you because of faith, because of grace. Or we, want, we don't want to be content to walk out of here the same way we walked in. In you, we want our, held, our heads held higher. And we want to go out and build your kingdom. Give us a desire to do that, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, the text is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul here offers an object lesson, much like Jesus would do with what we call the parables. Right? And the, the reason Jesus used parables was kind of twofold. One, uh, he wanted to reveal to those who wanted to know deeper spiritual truths and to conceal from those who didn't want, have, have ears to hear, who didn't really want to know, he would further conceal that truth from them. And Paul is just using a human example to bring it down to earth so they can understand uh, what heavenly truth he's trying to communicate to them. So he offers here an object lesson. He says even fallible humans' words are supposed to mean something when even a child says, but you said, but you promised, but you even shook on it. You told me. It's supposed to mean something to us. So even, so, uh, even more so, human contracts were not to be changed once entered into. Anybody sit down to a real estate transaction? Even a refinance of a home. My goodness, it, it, it's, there's, there's, there's more pages on the table than our books in my library, and, I, and we're signing everyone, I'm not reading a thing. Just trusting. Just trusting. <laughs> signing page after page. So imagine the, the kind of paperwork you need to change those things, right? Nobody enters into a, a, a contract like that and changes it once it's been signed by both parties. And so the chronological and theological superiority of the promise that God gave Abraham could not be annulled by something that would come 
more than 400 years later. It says in verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or a lot of translations have seed. I like seed. It does not say and to offsprings or to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, and to your seed, who Paul explains is Christ. This offering, or the offspring of this seed points to the singularity of the object, Jesus, and the destination, a single family in Christ. This is not a new euphemism to, to speak of Jesus. If you go all the way back, uh, it's a different metaphor being used here, but all the way back to uh, Jesus as the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We were spoke, speaking this morning in our small group, our life group, uh, about uh, how if, if God was all justice and no mercy, we don't get out of Genesis chapter 3. We've already messed it up irreparably. And so if he, his love, if his mercy didn't overshadow those things, we don't get out of Genesis 3. But already when the story is turned sideways, already in Genesis chapter 3, shortly after the creation, we've already messed it up. We're already in need of a hero. And we already see the trappings of a hero foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. The seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. And here the seed of Abraham, referring to the same person in Jesus. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This 430 years. Think about Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and the captivity in Egypt, and the exodus. All those things transpired before the law was given at Sinai. All those things transpired after the promise was given to Abraham. He's saying, look, none of that does away with the promise that I gave to Abraham before. That was universal in scope. It was meant for everybody. Not to create a, a different family or multiple families. It was meant to create a single family. So why, 430 years later, would something, the law, annul that? when it was ratified by no less than God himself. Listen to the words in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. There is nothing greater by which he could say, I swear to blank, like we would do. I need you to trust me more than me, so I'm going to add somebody else's name into it. God swears by his own name. He ratifies things himself. This is not an agreement between two parties that depended upon performance. This is a promise by God, a unilateral promise guaranteed by God himself. And the promise is always greater than the performance method. Over and over and over again we fall off the horse, reminding us that our performance is actually not all that good. Our track record is actually not all that good. And so I cling to the promise. I cling to the promise because my performance is lacking. So finally, the question we've been waiting for Paul to answer, why then the law? In verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels. You want to look into that? Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. We're not going to go there now. With this concept of the law being put in place by angels, Deuteronomy 33.2. By an intermediary or a mediator. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
And I confess to you that is a confusing bit of language. Uh, difficult couple of verses to unpack, but we're going to try to unpack them for you this morning. Uh, first of all, the answer to the question that we've all been dying to ask and have Paul answer, why the law? And he says, well, because of transgressions, which is just a fancy word for sin. But why the law? Because sin. That doesn't help much, Paul. So why does that answer the question? I want to offer you four different ways in which this answers the question. Why transgressions is why the law was added. First of all, the law defined what sin was. The law defined sin. It set parameters or limits by which our conduct had to conform. It set a standard in place. If you're on a road, happily cruising and ignorantly cruising along at 55 miles an hour in an open country road, you're going to assume you're not breaking the law. And then all of a sudden you come by a speed limit, 25 miles per hour. And you realize you're not just breaking the law, you're really breaking the law, which is worse than just breaking the law. And all of a sudden you, you are not aware of the fact that you were wrong before, but now you are totally aware. You slam on the brakes, head slams forward, coffee goes flying, so that you can get right with the law because you didn't realize you were violating it before, but now that it's been defined, now you know. So the law defines what sin is. It gives us parameters. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 says, It was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So it defines what sin is. Secondly, it mitigates sin. It helps to mitigate sin anyway. A knowledge of the standard allows those who desire to conform to the standard to do so. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a supervisor at work, a training instructor. And when I, when I walk around expecting a standard to be followed, I have to first communicate that standard. Or else I have no hopes that anybody's going to be following it. They don't know. They're In their ignorance, they, they can't be held accountable. But those that want to do well in their jobs, they say, I want to I do what uh, the training instructors say. I want to do what management says. So once I know what the standard is, I'm going to toe the line. I'm going to do what it is. It helps mitigate sin. Mitigate the wrongdoing, the transgression. Knowledge of a standard allows obedience to that standard. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11 through 11 say this. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So it defines the sin, it defines what sin is, and it mitigates sin for those who desire to conform to the law. It helps mitigate the sin. It's, it's written for those that would, be, would transgress the law because it says the person who doesn't want to is already going to conform. The person who doesn't want to, that's who this is written for. So it defines sin, it mitigates sin, it reveals sin in us. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, if, the, if it was the law that showed me my sin, I would never have known coveting was wrong if it had not said, must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. For no law, no sin would, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death. 
instead. So again, just like those signs, once the sign's in place, I now know that I want to do the thing that it's telling me not to do. Immediately. Men, the Bible says not to lust. Immediately. Women too, but men struggle probably more. Don't steal. There's all sorts of things that you can find pretty easy to steal, and nobody would ever know. Nobody would even care, probably, from work. A stapler here, a, a ream of paper there. To him that knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And, and so the law reveals the sin inside of us that we can't seem to avoid. Paul will go on this rant in Romans 7 later on. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What, what's going on? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken mess. Th that's law showing us our brokenness for a purpose, and we'll get to that later. But uh, finally, if you can believe it, the law increases sin. You say, Pastor Jeff, why would God send the law? if it's good? Doesn't God hate sin? Say so you, can, you can shake your head. God hates sin, right? God hates transgression. He hates us violating His law, His precepts. So then why would the law increase sin? Well, it does. Romans chapter 5, and verse 20. The law entered that sin might increase. For the purpose of increasing sin, the law entered. To make much of grace. Because the passage goes on, where sin did abound, grace did that much more abound. Where sin did increase, grace did that much more increase. Where, where your debt was the greatest. And those of us who have been irresponsible with credit cards know the, the, the overwhelming sense of, uh, of, of smothering that that is. Our sin debt is far greater still. And then Father God said, hold on a second. Let me get my checkbook out. And, and wrote a check that covered all of it. Your past sins, your present sins, the ones that you're thinking about committing right now future sins, all of them covered. You've been reckoned righteous before God because of Jesus and what He's done on the cross. So the law comes to define sin, to mitigate sin, to reveal sin, and to increase sin. As part of the purpose of preparing a people for Jesus. Preparing a people for Jesus. It revealed to them their need for an outside agency. The law, having done all those things, revealed how short I fall of fulfilling the law. Only one person fulfilled the law, it was Jesus. And so it revealed my need for an outside agency. It revealed your need for an outside agency. You cannot pick yourself up by the bootstraps, as it were. You can't do it. But somebody is standing by ready to do it for you. It revealed our need for an outside agency of grace. And it revealed the severity of sin and the method of dealing with it was also severe, commensurately severe. I, I would hate to live in the time where you had to kill an animal every time you messed up. Say, stop messing up, dude. I'm trying. Whack, there goes another animal. And it's preparing our hearts and our minds, it's preparing the Jewish hearts and minds for the absolute severity with which God deals with sin. And how much he hates it. That a life is sacrificed because of it. And it gives us a foundation for our ultimate atonement sacrifice in Christ Himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, get this, he sat down. What do you do when you sit down? What does that mean? You're done. It is finished. You sit here free to latch onto that promise because of what's already been done for you, apart from you, not because of you. The door is wide open. Somebody says, I have, a, I have an open door policy, which most good leaders should have. There's not, even, there's not even a door on this office. It's wide open for all to partake in that sacrifice, that atonement that Christ made for us. But the law was temporary. The text tells us it was temporary until the offspring should come. And this was another mark of its inferiority. The, the, the faith was meant to be an enduring system, uh, an enduring promise, whereas the law was simply came just to do those four things for a temporary period of time until the seed or the offspring, the object of the promise, had come. This law came to Israel through a mediator, an intermediary, as our version says. Moses was that mediator. But this law came only to one people, Israel. And what is it we've been talking about this whole time in Galatians, that God wants to make a universal family that knows no race, no creed, no any of those things. They're all, all those boundaries and barriers are broken down in Jesus. He's not looking to have a segmented population of people following this way and that. He wants one united family. And so Moses was the mediator of the one covenant to a particular people that necessarily caused division. There's no getting around that. The, the law caused division. Those who were in were in. Those who were out were out. The promise, however, on the other hand, relied on no mediator and was universal in that it created that one family. We're going to talk more uh, in weeks to come about the role, the temporary role that the law played as tutor or as Nanny, I think, is a better probably way of seeing it. But we'll get to that in due time. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God, did you not know this was going on the whole time? Why, why is this coming in after the fact? Is it contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Paul answers his own question. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The two were not in competition. The two were complementary. One proved the other. The law proved our need of a system based upon grace through faith, not a system based upon performance of works because of our incapability of it. He uses the word if. It's a contingent statement. As in contrary to fact, opposite of what's the case, impossible. Salvation cannot come through performance. Salvation cannot come through you doing the right stuff. At some point you're going to trip. And then it's over. The law was never meant to save, but to sober us to our need to be saved. I'll say that again. The law was never meant to save, but to sober us to our need to be saved. Why then would these believers have such an obsession with the law? Well, let me try to break it down in an analogy for you. Why were they so obsessed with this idea of performance? Uh, imagine, if you will, that, that uh, late in life discovered high school athlete has just has a natural giftedness at a particular sport or a scholar that's just a, a budding scholar who just shows an aptitude for a certain thing. 
And when they first come into knowledge of their gifting or their ability, they are all humility. Man, God has given me this thing. I have. I can take no credit. It just is. It's innate. It's it's born into me. I can take no credit for it. And then they begin to to hone that skill. They begin to to work at their craft. They begin to 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 maximize their natural gifting. And so, at some point, usually you can't even tell on the scale when it happened. At some point, that person stops thanking God and says, "Well, I train forty hours a week. I'm in the, I'm in the weight room constantly. That's why. Well, that's where I should be." But, but that's why I'm so good, is I train so hard. And you, you left that point where you said, in, in humility, God gifted me to do these things. And so they left the promise because they were obsessed with, they were enamored by the performance. The idea of performing their way into heaven. And they were so latched on to the idea of in their own strength, in their own flesh, being able to rise above and look a cut above everyone else. Look down their nose at everybody else because they're not quite there yet. That's why they're obsessed. They were glory hogs. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul says this, to call him foolish. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't need you to answer it. You know the answer. Having begun by something much greater than the flesh, are you now going to be perfected by the thing? I, I've said it this way. Imagine somebody coming in with a Picasso or a, a Rembrandt or some other famous painting. I'm not up on all my painters, but something, something that's, uh, you can't, almost can't even put a price tag on it. And then looking at the, the, at the toddler art class and saying, hey, Jimmy, hey, Johnny, why don't you go ahead and make that painting better by splashing some, some, uh, some paint on it? it? It's ridiculous to think that they could add anything to this, uh, this world-renowned painting. It's ridiculous to think that we can add anything to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's finished. He sat down not so you'd get up. He sat down to prove that he was finished. But the scripture, the law, the Torah, that's another word for that, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It imprisoned everything. Everything was touched by sin. This whole world is so depraved. If you, if you don't believe me... I, I mean, I could point you in the direction. I wouldn't want to put it in front of you, but there, there are... I just came across a picture somebody shared the other day. If Jesus comes back, kill him again. Even if you have no belief in, in my belief that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, wouldn't you hesitate to say something like that? The answer is no for a lot of people. They don't hesitate. I pray for those people that it's that that God shows Himself to them in a, in a powerful way before it's too late, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll either do it here voluntarily or at the judgment involuntarily, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Scripture imprisoned everything. This is a kind of trappings of our doctrine of total depravity. No one is good, no, not one, Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Really, Paul, nobody? Nobody seeks after God? These are Paul's words, not mine. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
That's the kind of lost that we are, without a compass, in the middle of nowhere. And I'm, I'm a re- recon guy. I like to think, you give me a compass and a map, I can get it just about anywhere. Just give me the map. I don't need a compass. Just give me a map. This is lost without a map or a compass. You have no idea. No train to associate. No, 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 no things to look at around you. Completely lost. But he didn't leave us there. Only under a grace-based system might promise triumph over performance. Where you might, you wouldn't have to be good enough. Because in Christ you already are. Someone here today, I believe someone here today, probably multiple people today are struggling to feel worthy. You walked in here, your head hanging, defeated. You might have just had a fight with a spouse or a friend before you walked in here thinking, man, it's just another example of me being worthless. Me not measuring up. Join the crowd. Join the crowd. We are all broken. We're all, we all walked in here only victorious in Jesus. Let this reality be a comfort to you that God knows you're a mess and wants you anyway. I, I heard a, a, a pastor reminiscing over a... Uh, he had kind of deceptively tricked this woman into going to a... a it was a concert, but before there was a concert, there was a bunch of preaching going on. And he wanted her to see some, of the, hear the gospel and, and uh, see that presented. So, uh, so he convinces her to go to this concert, before which is all this preaching. Um, and she's a single mother and, and uh, has you know, promiscuity in her past and, and other things that she's ashamed of. And, um, and, uh, and so they sit down and they're listening to this, this speaker. And he, he takes a rose, he takes a single rose, and he throws it out to the crowd. He says, I want you to pass this around. Just toss it back and forth like you would, have, you know, knocking a ball around. He said, I want you to toss this rose around. And then eventually, at the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to bring it back up to me. And so he's talking about promiscuity. He's talking about all these things being used up by the world and, and uh, giving yourself away to anybody that comes along. And he's, he's really, really uh, legalistically sort of pounding the pulpit of, of purity. And I, I believe purity is the best way uh, to proceed. Let me not make any bones about that. However, people mess up. And, and, and so at the end of the service, he says, let me get that rose back. And by the time the rose comes back to him, it's all, it's, it's broken, it's wilted, it's, and it's, and it's kind of ugly. It's, it's half, you know, he's, he's holding it together. And he, he holds it up. He says, look at this thing. Now you tell me who wants this rose. And the idea is that nobody would. But here's the thing, because the guy that brought this woman to that conference, to that concert, felt terrible. He said he took everything he could not to rush that stage and drag that preacher off that stage. He says, you don't get it. Jesus wants the rose. And we're all that broken, wilty rose for this reason or for that. And so if you're here this morning, don't feel good enough. Don't feel enough. For Jesus. In your own strength you're not. But he's not asked you to do this life in your own strength. He wants to infuse this life that you lead. He wants to lead it for you. He wants to live your life for you through you. 
Let you be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around you. You are not a sum total of your failures. By faith, not performance, you are a child of the King. And I can't help but think that this kind of a message, not the one that I've spoken, but the message we get from Galatians and the, the, the good news of the gospel is worth sharing. It's worth spreading around. It's worth telling people. I've told you my life verses, Acts chapter 4, verse 20. When Peter says to those that would arrest and beat him, he said, how can I but see? He said, look, stop, just stop talking about this guy, Jesus, and you'll be done. I'll, I'll stop hitting you. I'll stop beating you. I'll stop imprisoning you. To which a lot of people would say, yeah, that's, it. that's easy. That's an easy formula. I'll just go ahead and do that. Sign me up for, the, for not getting beat again. And instead, what does Peter say to him? He says, how can we but speak of the things that we've seen and heard? I can't shut up. When I felt called to preach, it wasn't so much that I felt an ability to do it as an inability not to. And man, I would love for everybody in this room to catch that fire. That you can't help but walk out of here and say, man, that, that he's a clumsy, bumbling sometimes, stuttering preacher. But man, is he excited about Jesus. Reflecting on this text, I see two very different things. The nature of man, the law reveals to us that rebellion is bound up in our DNA, bound up in who we are. Again, in Romans 7, Paul, what he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, he does do. And he's just in this back and forth sort of confusing. We understand it, though. We get it. When Paul's saying that, we understand totally. I say sometimes you want to do the right thing. You're not doing the right thing. Sometimes you have to want to do the right thing. Other times you don't even want to do the right thing. How many have been there? I don't even want to do the right thing. I want to want to do the right thing because I'm not even wanting to do the right thing right now. I need, I need Jesus to miracle me into just wanting to do the right thing and then miracle me again into actually doing it. But that power, that, that source is available to, me, available to me whenever I choose to make use of it. It's a wonder I don't make use of it more. It's a wonder you don't make use of it more. It's a wonder why more people are, are not in this building because of things that you've said to them about what Jesus is doing in this building. Why I haven't been more vocal about it. We get so busy. We, 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 we do, 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 and we forget to take time. That The whole reason we're doing ministry. Somebody asked me, well, I don't want to take too much of your time um, because I know you're busy. Well, imagine the irony of me stopping actual ministry so that I could get up here and prepare to talk about ministry and miss an opportunity in the meantime. You're not wasting my time. You're making my time more, more fruitful. You're making my time more useful. History reveals that rather than embrace the promise in our pride, we choose performance. The Jews were obsessed with ritual, with religion, and with law. And we still do sometimes. We want to point back to the Ten Commandments instead of the Sermon on the Mount. We say, look, I'm doing all these things. Like the rich young ruler, I've done all these things for my youth. We still want to believe that there's something innate in us that is deserving of entry into the kingdom. And I see all that rebellion wrapped up in us. And then I look at the God who came to us anyway. The patient, long-suffering God that we sing about. A God that would choose a random guy who would lie about his relationship with his wife to save his skin. A guy that would laugh at the idea of the promise that God just gave him. 
because he was too old to have a, have a child with his wife. A guy that would disbelieve God's faithfulness and take matters into his own hands and, and give his family a son through his wife's handmaiden. God didn't make any of the promises to Abraham contingent upon Abraham's performance. And if he had, he probably would have stopped. Further, this patient, long-suffering God called a people his own who had complained about the food that he gave them to eat after freeing them from 400 years of slavery. Yeah, but I liked the onions back in Egypt. I liked having those. I was shackled. Yeah, my wrist kind of hurt, but, but those onions were really good. I mean, how petty we get when we forget what God's done for us. A people that would worship a golden statue rather than the God that brought them out of Egypt. And, and lest we think we're so far removed from that sin, how about those vehicles we worship or that house that we worship or that land that we want to have, we want to retire comfortably or uh, whatever else. I'm so thankful that uh, we have a, a recent retiree in Ed who's sprinting into retirement helping this church with the treasury, with other things, helping be a second mind for me because I'm, I'm so busy with work and other things. But we, we, get, we, get, we don't want to, don't just look at these guys in the, in the Old Testament and say, ah, I'm so, so far removed from that. No, you're not. You can find modern examples of all these things. Maybe this one will hit close to home. You run back to God only when convenient. Read the book of Judges. As soon as they're under any sort of pressure, back to God we go. And as soon as we're comfortable again, we depart from God again. A people who would prefer an earthly king so they could look more like the pagan nations around them. This, is, this God put up with all of this garbage for thousands of years to enact and fulfill a promise he made to this guy Abraham so that you and I could enter into that promise, into that one universal family he's making through his son Jesus Christ to keep his promise when literally no one on earth deserved it. How different we are from the God that we serve. Like I said, this message, not mine, but this message of grace is one that deserves to be shared with everyone that we know. Imagine standing in the judgment line next to a friend that you always thought about sharing Jesus with and never did. And as Jesus, the king, is separating the sheep from the goats, he pushes your friend to the left as he brings you into the right because you're one of his. And your friend looks back at you and says, not once. Not once. How many family members, how many close friends do we have that, that know, they know we go to church and we're content with that. We're just okay with that. You know I go to church. I've never spoken the name of Jesus to you, but you know I go to church. Shame on us. This ought to be something. This gospel, this good news of Jesus ought to be something that we can't help but share. It's oozing out of us all the time. How can we but speak of these things that we've seen and heard? The world desperately needs to hear this message. And it might not come from anyone else. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we close out our thoughts this morning. I can understand that evangelism is not uh, as natural for everyone as it is for some. Um, 
for a long time I felt like I was gifted with the gift of evangelism. I'm just, I'm, I'm eager to share my faith. I just, I like to do it. I don't ever feel, I never wonder about what's somebody going to think, what, are they going to make fun of me. I, that has never bothered me. Uh, and I don't take credit for that. That's something I think God's put in me, um, a boldness. But, um, but the question I have for myself then is why am I not doing more? And so to help us, I'm actually going to bring in a, uh, a speaker who's going to talk to us about evangelism next week. Because I'm not content. I, I use this term this morning. I'm spiritually discontented. Not with God, but with my current state. With our collective current state. That, that uh, these curtains are too close. That there's not enough seats filled. That, that people are not giving their lives to Jesus by the dozens in this town. Uh, that by and large are turning to drugs and alcohol to numb the absence of Jesus. I want to be an agent of grace to those people. I want to welcome them as they come in, maybe disheveled, maybe dirty, maybe still hungover. I want to welcome them through that door with a hug and communicating the promise of God to them. That but by the grace of God, there go I. Except for the grace of God, we would be there too. In the meantime, while we're waiting for that, and I'm excited about next week, but think about who that one person might be for you that you could commit to praying for, that you can be more active in trying to bring Jesus up to, that you could be discontented with them being lost in their sin. It should be all of our friends and family. But start with one and see if that doesn't create in you a passion to continue doing it where you can't help but speak of these things that you've seen and heard. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your promise. We thank you, Lord, that it's not performance-based, it's not merit-based. It's faith-based and grace-based so that at my worst, you still pull me in and give me a hug. that in light of all that I've done and all that I'll continue to do to fail you in the future, you'll continue to see me through the perfect lens of your Son. Father, instill in us an excitement about these things, Lord, that we would not be content to keep them in this building, Lord, but that we'd be faithful to bring them to the highways, to the byways, Lord, that we would obey your great commission to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything you've commanded. Because there's no greater life than the one that's submitted fully and completely to you. We thank you, Lord. Pray you bless the rest of our Sunday and the rest of our week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.